Good morning, Southwinds. It's great to see everybody today. We're so glad that you are here. Uh, before we jump into our study this morning, I want to uh, pass on some news uh, from Pastor Jay and from Kim. Uh, he wants to let you know, they want to let you know that they are very grateful for all your prayers and uh, offers of support. And uh, also just to let you know, the surgery has been very successful. So we're praising God for that. Um, Jay is uh, recovering and making some good progress. It, it turns out the uh, surgery had to be a little more invasive than they were anticipated uh, that it would be, but that just means that the recovery process uh, should be a little longer than we first thought. So I told Jay I would expect him back in the office in about 10 days. Um, not, real, not real worried about it. But yeah, keep praying for him and uh, keep praying for Kim as they're going through this time. They're doing well and they are uh, grateful for your prayers. Well, I'm going to ask you, if you would, uh, to open your Bibles, and we're going to begin in Acts 23, verse 12 today. And uh, we're continuing our study uh, in this book about what it means to be a sent people. And last week, if you're here, you'll remember that we began to look at how Paul uh, was going to have to play defense, really, for the rest of his life. Uh, for about a decade now, uh, We've been studying the three missionary journeys that Paul was on this decade of the years AD, about 47 to 57. Paul has been traveling all around the Eastern Mediterranean world, spreading the gospel. And now he wants to go to Rome. That's his great desire in his life. But he has a task first that he wants to undertake, and that is to take to Jerusalem a gift. It is a gift from all of the Gentile churches to the poverty-stricken Jewish Christians in Jerusalem. And so he does this, and as we saw last week, just a few days after he arrives in Jerusalem, he gets falsely accused of defiling the temple, and a mob forms, and a mob almost beats him to death. Uh, the Romans intervene, they take him into custody, and he ends up giving two defense speeches there in Jerusalem. Uh, this week and next week, we're going to look at the third and fourth and fifth speeches. He has three more to go. Our, our message today is going to focus primarily on number three. I'm just going to briefly mention number four. Next week, we're going to get to five. And all of these three defense speeches are going to be in Caesarea, which is the uh, port city that served as a military base uh, for the Romans. Now, there's a lot of verses we're going to be covering today. It's another lengthy passage, but there's a truth I want you to see that's very simple uh, very straightforward. I can state it in two words, and that is keep calm. Keep calm. As Paul continues to defend himself and to defend the gospel, under great stress, he keeps calm. And I, I'm sure that most of us have seen the, the keep calm memes that are all around on the internet, on t-shirts and all that, right? Uh, keep calm and carry on. Uh, this originally, if you don't know, actually comes from a 1939 uh, British government poster uh, that was just preparing the people of Great Britain for World War II, and, and now it's just kind of everywhere. You know, keep calm and eat chocolate. How many of you, that's your favorite uh, <laughs> way? Keep calm and drink coffee. Some of you like keep calm and go shopping. Uh, keep calm and grow mustache. Uh, my favorite is keep calm and eat bacon. Uh, now today, these verses that we're going to look at, they, they tell us, keep calm because God is working. Keep calm because God is working. God is always working, especially when one of his kids is defending the gospel. 
Now, in Acts 23 and 24 and 25, these chapters really, if you, if you will enter into them, you will see this. They read like a suspense thriller. It's not calm in these chapters. What is really going on here? And I was just thinking about this this week. How many of you, you like to watch thrillers, but you don't want to live in one? Would you agree with me on that? Um, I don't want to live in the movies that I like to watch. Uh, I think generally I would like to live in a British show. And a lot of people think those are boring, you know, uh, and, and we're told that it's, well, it's really all about the character development. And some of you are going, I just want some action. This is killing me. Can someone please shoot somebody in this, this show? And so we, we like to watch thrillers, but we don't generally want to live in them. And that's kind of what's going on for Paul. We're going to see today he's going to be the object of a terrorist attack. Uh, we're going to see him having to defend himself all by himself in front of a, the Roman governor. No attorney with him. Nobody with him. He's by himself. His, his only advocate is Jesus. And like with Stephen, Jesus does a pretty good job when his people are on trial. But Paul is all by himself, humanly speaking. He is in some very tense situations. And, and some of you may have experienced a taste of this if you've ever been to court, um, especially if you've ever had for some reason to be on trial. Paul is there. He has no one. This is not very long after what we studied last week, just a few days. So he's probably still beaten up. He's probably still in great pain physically, battered. He's, he's by himself. He's just this little Jewish Danny DeVito standing up in front of everybody, all by himself, in front of the Jews, in front of the Romans, trying to make a defense. Now, John Stott, the commentator, says that Paul has about as good a chance of winning as a butterfly escaping a steamroller. And yet we're going to see Paul is calm because Paul knows that God is sovereign, even when everything in his life is under attack. Now, I know it's a lot easier to believe in God's sovereignty on Sunday at church than it is on Mondays, right? In real life. I mean, we know what the Bible tells us to do. We've heard it many, many times. But how do you do that in real life? How do you keep calm and trust that God is at work when you lose your job or when the bills are piling up and your car is breaking down? How do you keep calm when your health is threatened or when you want to tell someone that you love about Jesus, but they don't want to hear, and maybe they're antagonistic or even hostile. How do you keep calm? Well, Paul shows us how we can stay calm and how we can trust God in the middle of it all. And there's, there's two big truths that I want you to see today in chapter 23 and then in chapter 24. And here's the first one. Uh, we can keep calm, but first, because God is in control even when we go through trials. This is what we see in the first verses we're going to look at, Acts 23, verses 12 through 35. Paul is just going through this series of trials, but all the way, God is doing his work. Uh, let me just make sure you're caught up from last week, that you're remembering where he is. Uh, Paul, you'll remember, gave his first defense before an angry mob that was trying to kill him. Then he goes before a hostile Jewish council, and, and Paul brings up the resurrection, and they start fighting each other. I said last week, if you can imagine, it's like 70 pastors having a brawl all in one room. I wish there was video of that. And, and it gets so bad, for the second time, Paul needs to be rescued by the Roman army so that he won't be killed. He gets to verse 11 of chapter 23, the last verse we looked at last week, and Paul is thinking back on his experience 
And Jesus comes to him, remember this, and says, take courage. I'm with you. I'm going to protect you. I'm going to get you to Rome. It's going to be all right. But the Jewish leaders, they're still angry with Paul. And they still want to kill him. And so what we're about to see is they put together a plan to assassinate Paul. And God is going to work in some amazing ways, surprising ways, to save his servant. Now, I want to ask you about this. You can do this later on your own time. But if you scan through these verses, verses 12 through 35, one of the things you might notice is that there is not one mention anywhere in these verses of God or of Jesus or of the Holy Spirit. There are no miracles in these verses. And yet Luke is clearly communicating to us that God is at work. It kind of reminds me of the Old Testament book of Esther, Esther is the one Old Testament book that never anywhere mentions God. And yet, God's fingerprints are everywhere. This beautiful, favored Jewish girl becomes a Persian queen. She saves her Jewish people from destruction. And how does that happen? Well, God is quietly at work. And this narrative that I'm about to read to you and work through with you is is just a reminder for us that we should never mistake the lack of the spectacular or the dramatic for the inactivity of God. Never. We, We should never mistake the lack of the spectacular or dramatic for the inactivity of God. God's quiet hand is always at work, always. Here's the first thing I want you to see. God uses seemingly weak and insignificant people to accomplish his purposes. We see this in verses 12 to 22. It says, The next morning, the Jews formed a conspiracy and bound themselves with an oath not to eat or drink until they had killed Paul. More than 40 men were involved in this plot. Now, I was kind of thinking about this. They had better do this quickly, right? I mean, no eating or drinking. Some of you, how long would you last? Two hours? Uh, some of you know what this is like. You know, you, you say, I fast every day from lunch to dinner. Um, and these guys say, we're not going to eat until we kill this guy. And so what we're seeing again and again, Luke keeps emphasizing this, is these twin themes that Luke is innocent and Jesus is alive. Paul, Luke wants everyone to see, is guilty of nothing according to Roman law. And so we see these people Associated with the Sanhedrin, the majority of the were Sadducees. They didn't believe in the resurrection. They, They cook up this plot to kill Paul. And we're also meant to understand that these are the people who are the experts in the law, the people who really, really know God's law. You know, things like do not kill. Things like do not bear false witness. And we see an example of what can happen when religious people develop a wicked ideology. They sacrificed their theology. Verse 14 says, They went to the chief priests and elders and said, We have taken a solemn oath not to eat anything until we have killed Paul. Now then, you and the Sanhedrin petition the commander to bring him before you on the pretext of wanting more accurate information about his case. We are ready to kill him before he gets here. So they say, You act like you want to talk to Paul again, put him on trial again, and when he comes, we'll kill him before he ever gets there. How will Paul escape this plot? Notice who God uses. Verse 16. But when the son of Paul's sister heard of this plot, he went into the barracks and told Paul. This is actually the only mention of anyone that Paul is related to his family. We learn that Paul has a sister. His sister has a son. I mean, that'd be pretty cool, right, to be able to say Uncle Paul. 
uh, to the Apostle Paul. And what we know is that as a Roman citizen, Paul has freedom for visitors to come and to visit with him. Somehow, maybe on one of these visits, this nephew overhears the conspiracy. Now, scholars are divided about his age. Some say that he is probably late teens, early 20s. I, I'm inclined, based on verse 19, uh, where it says the commander is going to take this, this young man by the hand and lead him around. I'm inclined to think he's younger, that he may be like a little boy, because how many commanders are going to take a 20-year-old by the hand? And how many 20-year-olds are going to let a commander take them by the hand? But if it's a little pudgy hand, and what I, what I kind of imagine happens is this nephew comes to Paul, and while he's coming, he overhears these conspirators talking, and they don't notice him because they think he's just a little kid. They just keep talking in front of him. And have you ever noticed how amazing it is what little ears can pick up? You know, we all know how this works. We're talking about something. They hear it. And before we know it, they tell their friends. And these days they put it on Facebook. And little kids just have a great ability to pick up on things. And so God is using this little boy, it seems, as part of his plan to get Paul to Rome eventually. It's quite astonishing. But God is doing more than that. He also uses a Roman centurion. Verse 17 says, Then Paul called one of the centurions and said, Take this young man to the commander. He has something to tell him. So he took him to the commander. The centurion said, Paul the prisoner sent for me and asked me to bring this young man to you because he has something to tell you. The commander took the young man by the hand, drew him aside, and asked, What is it you want to tell me? Verse 20, he said, The Jews have agreed to ask you to bring Paul before the Sanhedrin tomorrow on the pretext of wanting more accurate information about him. Don't give in to them, because more than 40 of them are waiting in ambush for him. They have taken an oath not to eat or drink until they have killed him. They are ready now, waiting for your consent to their request. The commander dismissed the young man and cautioned him, don't tell anyone that you have reported this to me. And so what we see here is, is God using ordinary circumstances, simple things, little people, to accomplish his great plans. I also want you to notice we, we see the, the seamless integration between God's sovereignty, he's in control, and human responsibility. We act freely. God isn't doing this against their will, and God isn't doing this apart from human will. I mean, you basically just have people doing their jobs. A nephew hears, he tells a centurion, and the centurion takes the message to the commander, and the commander hears that, and he says, don't tell anyone. We need to protect Paul. It's just amazing how God is using all these people to accomplish his purposes. This is how we live our lives. We, we do our jobs we trust God to work things out because our God is a God who, who loves to use common things to accomplish even eternal purposes. Things like dinner with friends. I read this week about the conversion of the very famous author C.S. Lewis, the author among many other books of the Chronicles of Narnia. And he talks about something that happened in his life on September 19, 1931. Uh, Lewis wanted to have some friends over for dinner, and so he invites a friend named Dyson and another friend whose name was Tolkien. Um, that's a cool friend to have. You know, hey, J.R.R., come on over for dinner. 
And if you don't know who J.R.R. Tolkien is, he's the author of The Lord of the Rings. And those are actually books, and they're actually better than the movies. <laughs> and uh, Lewis says, hey, we'll, we'll smoke a pipe and we'll talk about English uh, because they were weird. And <laughs> they come over and they have dinner and they take a stroll after. And Lewis says they talked about myth and metaphor. Like I said, they're nerds. And and they keep talking, and it starts raining, and so they go inside Lewis's home, and they, they keep talking, and Tolkien stays to 3 a.m., and Dyson stays until 4 a.m., and eventually somewhere in there, the conversation shifts from myth and metaphor to Jesus. And Lewis says that that night was the beginning stages of his conversion to Christianity. He wrote later to a friend, I have just passed from believing in God to believing in Christ to Christianity. My long night talk with Dyson and Tolkien had a good deal to do with it. C.S. Lewis would go on to describe Christianity as the true myth. It was the true story, the true story of the whole world. And think of all the thousands, tens of thousands, who knows how many, maybe millions of people who have been impacted through the writings of C.S. Lewis. Maybe even some of you here today, that's part of your conversion story. And it all started when some friends came over for dinner. See, never underestimate what God is doing in the ordinary course of life. God is always at work. He's always accomplishing his eternal purposes. And our job is just to do our jobs and live the lives he's called us to and trust him in that and give him thanks because God loves to use little people to accomplish his purposes. Also, we see that God uses people the world sees as important. In verses 23 to 30, God's going to use a man named Lysias to protect Paul. He's not a believer. But, you know, Proverbs 21.1 says, The heart of the king is in the hands of the Lord. He turns it wherever he wills. And we know that God can use anyone. God even uses secular governments. God even uses politicians, believe it or not, to accomplish his purposes. Verse 23 says, Then he called two of his centurions and ordered them, Get ready a detachment of 200 soldiers, 70 horsemen, and 200 spearmen to go to Caesarea at nine tonight. Provide mounts for Paul so that he may be taken safely to Governor Felix. Now, that's a lot of protection, right? I mean, how many guys do the enemy have? About 40. How many are on our side? 200 soldiers, 70 horsemen, 200 spearmen. We'll be all right. How is Paul going to get to Caesarea? It's actually about 60 miles from Jerusalem. And this time what we see is instead of a little boy, God uses the cavalry. And both are at his disposal. Sometimes he uses children. Sometimes he uses a tank. And they go by night. You can kind of just imagine if you were living along the road en route from Jerusalem to Caesarea, seeing this entourage, it's like, who is this guy? Who are they trying to protect? And it's just this little Jewish preacher named Paul. Now, we're about to be introduced to Felix, the governor, and it's important that we understand something about who Felix is. Felix is the governor before a guy named Festus, and that's going to be defense speech number four. Great names. I'm always, because I'm a good pastor, pointing out to those of you who are having children some examples of Bible names you might like to use. And I'm I'm recommending Festus today. Your kid will be special if you name your child Festus. But back to Felix, Felix, 
Uh, he was a wicked guy. I mean, he was so wicked. Say, how wicked was Felix? He was so wicked that even Emperor Nero thought he was wicked. I mean, that's pretty bad. You know, Nero, uh, who fiddled while Rome burned, who blamed it on the Christians, uh, even Nero thought Felix was too violent, and he eventually recalled him. Now, Felix, uh, he takes a woman named Drusilla as his wife. She was actually only 19 when he married her. He was her second husband. Uh, She was his third wife. And she was the, a woman, the scholars tell us, of legendary beauty. Felix manipulated and talked her into divorcing her husband. He was a guy who had gotten into power through his brother in the royal palace. Just this politician par excellence, corrupt. You know, now if, if Paul is Danny DeVito, uh, then maybe you can think of Felix like Kevin Spacey in House of Cards. He's manipulating, he's corrupt, he's conniving, he's abusive, just a ruthless pragmatist. What is Felix going to do when he gets this letter about Paul? And strangely enough, we're going to see because God is at work, he is also going to protect Paul. Verse 25 to 30 is the letter. It says, uh, he wrote a letter as follows, Claudius Lysias to his excellency, Governor Felix, greetings. And I want you to be aware ahead of time, there's lots of flattery going on here. Like I said, nothing excellent about Felix. I want you to notice how Lysias carefully writes this letter to both flatter Felix and to make himself look you know, really, really good, like a first-rate soldier. Verse 27, this man was seized by the Jews, and they were about to kill him, but I came with my troops and rescued him, for I had learned that he is a Roman citizen. Now, is that how it went down? No, not at all. When did he find out that Paul was a Roman citizen? When he was about to flog him illegally. And that wasn't why he saved him at all. But this letter, though it's not filled with integrity, it actually gets the job done because he does speak some truth in the next few sentences. He writes, I wanted to know why they were accusing him, so I brought him to their Sanhedrin. I found that the accusation had to do with questions about their law But there was no charge against him that deserved death or imprisonment. So he's just saying as what we would call a secular person, this is like a theological dispute. This is not about the law. And again, you need to understand this is Luke's repeated theme that he is hammering again and again and again throughout these defense speeches, throughout the book of Acts. Paul is innocent. Christianity is a legitimate faith. Verse 30 says, When I was informed of a plot, to be carried out against this man, I sent him to you at once. I also ordered his accusers to present to you their case against him. And so God, he's using Lysias, one man, to be an advocate for Paul. We also see, thirdly, that God uses the powers of this world for his purposes. In verses 31 to 35, we see God using a Roman army to get Paul to safety. Luke writes, so the soldiers carrying out their orders, took Paul with them during the night and brought him as far as Antipatris, and that's halfway to Caesarea. The next day, they let the cavalry go on with him while they returned to the barracks. When the cavalry arrived in Caesarea, they delivered the letter to the governor and handed Paul over to him. The governor read the letter and asked what province he was from. Learning that he was from Cilicia, he said, I will hear your case when your accusers get here. Then he ordered that Paul be kept under guard in Herod's palace. And so Paul is now safely in custody at Caesarea. He has escaped this assassination plot. 
God is at work. God has used small, seemingly insignificant people. God has used powerful people, people the world sees as important. God is at work. We can keep calm. Uh, we, we should never, again, as I said, never mistake the lack of the spectacular for the inactivity of God. Though God's name is not mentioned, he is at work. He is fulfilling his promises. We can trust him and we should thank him today because he who began a good work in you will one day bring it to completion. And that's going to happen even when you're stressed out. That's going to happen even when you're facing overwhelming trials. That's going to happen even when you're in doubt. God is at work. Second reason we can keep calm. This is Acts 24. God empowers us to be faithful witnesses, even in stressful situations. Now, in Acts 24, we're going to see that Paul is going to go before the court of Felix, and by God's power, God is going to use him. And there's some truths underneath this heading that I want you to see. The first one is we can be faithful even when falsely accused. In verses 1 through 9, Luke is going to describe for us one example of the many ways that enemies of the gospel may oppose us. And what they do here is they hire a hotshot attorney named Tertullus. He's the guy who's going to voice these trumped-up charges. Verse 1, Five days later, the high priest Ananias went down to Caesarea with some of the elders and a lawyer named Tertullus, and they, they brought their charges against Paul before the governor. Now, I want you to watch the flattery that's about to happen. It's like textbook. When Paul was called in, Tertullus presented his case before Felix. We have enjoyed a long period of peace under you, and your foresight has brought about reforms in this nation everywhere and in every way most excellent, Felix. We acknowledge this with profound gratitude. But in order not to weary you further, I would request that you be kind enough to hear us briefly. You know, someone has said, you always know when a lawyer is lying. It's when his lips are moving. <laughs> and everyone knew Tertullus was lying. Felix, he actually ruled uh, from 52 AD to 59, and he was never a man known for excellent reforms. Everybody hated him. He was a violent ruler. He regularly besieged cities when they didn't do just what he wanted. He would starve the people out. He would burn the force around the city so they couldn't recover. <laughs> I mean, this is just pure flattery. You know, it would be sort of like saying, we want to thank you today, Adolf, Mr. Hitler, for your generous reforms. I mean, it was a ludicrous thing to say. Tertullus goes on in verses 5 to 9. He makes four accusations against Paul. He says, we have found this man to be a troublemaker, stirring up riots among the Jews all over the world. He is a ringleader of the Nazarene sect and even tried to desecrate the temple, so we seized him. By examining him yourself, you will be able to learn the truth about all these charges we are bringing against him. The Jews joined in the accusation, asserting that these things were true. So he first asserts that Paul is a troublemaker. He literally calls him a, a plague. It's like Paul infects people and Maybe you've been accused of something like this. Maybe you shouldn't be surprised when people think like this about us. Second, he says he's a political agitator. He stirs up riots. Well, there's a slight grain of truth here because wherever Paul preached, have you noticed, the riots seem to break out. But the truth is Paul doesn't start the riot. Other people always do. 
Third, he calls him a cult leader, a, a ringleader of the Nazarene sect. He's just trying to, uh, to position Christianity as this abnormal religion. And Paul's going to respond by saying this isn't true, that Christianity is just the fulfillment of Judaism. And then fourth, the main charge is that Paul tried to desecrate the temple. Now, this is an outright lie. Uh, Paul was there because he was purifying himself. He wasn't even speaking in the temple. He was there to bring an offering. It was other people that started the riot. Now, Tertullus says all this. He hands it off to Felix. The Jewish leadership joins in. And we're just seeing how the enemies of the gospel uh, will stop at nothing. And now it's Paul's turn to speak. And there's no flattery in his introduction. He's respectful but truthful. And Paul's response shows us something important. It shows us that we can be faithful even when telling the truth is dangerous. So what we see in verses 10 through the rest of this section, verse 27. We can speak calmly. We can speak courageously. And we can do it in both public and private contexts, which we're going to see Paul doing. The first thing is we see Paul's faithfulness in public, verses 10 to 21. It says, when the governor motioned for him to speak, Paul replied, I know that for a number of years you have been a judge over this nation, so I gladly make my defense. And I, I think it's kind of subtle, but I love how Paul doesn't say he was a good judge or a bad judge. He just says, you've been a judge. It's like, I see that you are a man, so that I gladly will make my defense. He just kind of puts it out there. And he goes into his defense, and it's kind of a three-point message. In verses 11 to 16, he says that his religious record is clear. In verses 17 to 20, he says his civil behavior is blameless. And then in verse 21, he gets to his message, his personal message, which is about the real issue of the resurrection. In verse 11, Paul's religious record, he says, You can easily verify that no more than 12 days ago I went up to Jerusalem to worship. He says, I've only been here for 12 days. I mean, how could I have started a riot? In seven of those days, I was under a purification ritual. And then I've been tied up in these hearings. I haven't been here long enough yet. And by the way, let me bring this back in. It's just been a few days since that very first time the mob beat him nearly to death. So what we talked about last week, Paul standing before them bruised and bleeding. Well, he may not be bleeding anymore, but he's still probably pretty beat up. And he's making his defense. Verse 12, my accusers did not find me arguing with anyone at the temple or stirring up a crowd in the synagogues or anywhere else in the city. I wasn't even preaching. I was just bringing an offering. And they cannot prove to you the charges they are now making against me. And now Paul turns the corner. He's so amazing at transitioning in these settings. He just moves right into the gospel. Verse 14, however, I admit that I worship the God of our fathers as a follower of the way. And do you understand today, people, that we belong to the way? Jesus is the truth and the way. We don't just believe as Christ followers in living a way. We believe in a person who is the way. We don't just believe in some truth. We believe in a person who is the truth. Truth is not just propositions, a set of those. Truth has skin. Truth is a person. Jesus is the truth, and the way is Jesus. The truth is Jesus. We belong to Jesus. Amen. He is the way. And Paul goes on. He's trying to communicate that what he believes is not something strange. He says, they, which they call a sect. 
And Paul says, I believe everything that agrees with the law and that is written in the prophets. And I have the same hope in God as these men that there will be a resurrection of both the righteous and the wicked. So I strive always to keep my conscience clear before God and man. Paul's saying what I believe and what I teach is just straight up fulfilled Judaism. It's in the Bible. I want to pause right here for a moment because sometimes, sometimes Christians will say something like this. You know, Jewish people believe in the Old Testament, but we believe in the New Testament. Can I encourage you never to say that? It's not true. The Old Testament is a Christian book. Do you understand? You read the Gospels. Jesus in the Gospels is debating the Jewish leaders about how to read and interpret the Old Testament. Jesus tells the Pharisees, you don't understand your scriptures because you don't believe in me. He says, Moses was writing about me before Abraham was. I am. He says, Abraham rejoiced to see my day. We need to be reminded this is our Bible, all of it, Old Testament, New Testament. It's all the word of God. Our our beliefs come from everything here. And Paul is just saying, that's my conviction. I'm simply believing and living out the Bible. Now, he moves on to the second point, which is about his civil behavior. Verse 17, after an absence of several years, I came to Jerusalem to bring my people gifts for the poor and to present offerings. I was ceremonially clean when they found me in the temple courts doing this. There was no crowd with me, nor was I involved in any disturbance. But there are some Jews from the province of Asia who ought to be here before you and bring charges if they have anything against me. Verse 20. Or these who are here should state what crime they found in me when I stood before the Sanhedrin. And remember, we talked about this last week. You know, they didn't even charge him, the council, because they got into a fight among themselves uh, before they could... uh, charge him, and he had to be rescued. In verse 21, Paul then gets to the real issue, his third point, which is the resurrection. Unless it was this one thing I shouted as I stood in their presence, it is concerning the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial before you today. And Paul brings it to this point. He says, this is the issue, and it's still the issue today. Will you believe in the Messiah, Jesus, the Son of God, whom God the Father has raised from the dead? That's the issue. Do you see how Paul just keeps bringing it back and working the resurrection in? And he's going to talk about this in in chapter 25 before Festus in his fourth defense. And we're not going to be able to cover this. You can read this on your own before next week's study. But you're going to see if you read that by Acts 25, Paul will have been in prison two years. And there's no legitimate reason, humanly speaking. Just try to imagine your frustration or your anger if that had been you. And yet he remains calm. Yet he remains faithful. Yet he continues to just proclaim the message of salvation, even as he ends up getting forced to appeal to Caesar so he won't unjustly be sent back to the Jewish leaders trying to kill him. Paul is going to stay faithful to proclaim the resurrection because he knows God is at work, because he knows God is accomplishing his purposes. He can just remain calm and courageous and boldly proclaim what God has given him to proclaim. That's what he does in public, but we now see Paul's faithfulness in private. Verse 22 Then Felix, who was well acquainted with the way, adjourned the proceedings. And 
we, we believe he understood some things about Christianity through his marriage to Drusilla. She was a Jewess. She was a member of the Herodian family, so she had been around enough to learn some things. Felix says, when Lysias, the commander, comes, I will decide your case. So what does he do? Well, he delays. Procrastination. And as we often say, justice delayed is justice denied. Why is Felix doing this? In verse 27, a few verses down, it says he wanted to do the Jews a favor. He, he knows Paul is innocent. He knows he can't charge him, but he wants to appease the Jews. And so Paul suffers as a result. Verse 23, he ordered the centurion to keep Paul under guard, but to give him some freedom and permit his friends to take care of his needs. Now, I want you to watch this last part. This last little paragraph is so rich. Uh, Paul, during these next couple of years, is going to be repeatedly called in before Felix. And we're going to see that Paul continues to proclaim calmly, courageously, boldly, faithfully the same message in private that he's been proclaiming in public. Verse 24, several days later, Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, who was a Jewess. He sent for Paul and listened to him as he spoke about faith in Christ Jesus. Now, he wants to hear from Paul, so he's intrigued. But I want you to notice, as soon as Paul gets before him again, what does he talk about? Very first thing Luke tells us is that Paul is speaking about faith in Jesus Christ. What was Paul preaching about everywhere publicly? Faith in Jesus Christ. You know, if you're here and you're not a Christ follower, you need to know this is the point. This is our message as followers of Jesus. The good news of the gospel is that we are saved by Jesus. We are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And Paul is just telling Felix how he can be saved. Faith in Christ Jesus. Paul is not saying that it's faith plus some other stuff. It's just faith in Jesus. And, you know, we, we, we see Felix as a wicked man. He is so wicked that he doesn't deserve to hear this good news. But we're reminded, neither do we. I want you to notice how Paul gets to the good news. And he gets to the good news by telling him the bad news first. That's verse 25. As Paul discoursed on righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come. So, Paul begins with righteousness. This would be the righteousness of God. And Paul would have talked about how only righteous people are going to heaven. But there's a problem, and it's this. None of us is righteous. Therefore, we need someone else's righteousness. And that is the gospel, that God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. You see, to get to the good news, you have to share the bad news. Do you understand that if we don't tell people the bad news, then the good news doesn't make any sense? Why would you need the good news if there's not any bad news? And Paul understood that, so he talks about our sinfulness and how we need God's righteousness. He, he goes on to talk about self-control. This is obviously very relevant for a man like Felix who never displayed any self-control. And then I love how he's talking about the judgment to come. Now, again, think about this. You're in prison. You've been there months and months and months. You're going to be there for a couple of years. You're a prisoner. You have a chance to talk to the guy who can set you free. He wants to hear from you. So what are you going to say? Is there anyone else here who thinks, who's willing to admit that they would be tempted to use some flattery like Tertullus? I mean, I would. 
How many of you would do what Paul did and say, you know, Felix, here's what I'd like to talk about today, the judgment to come. I mean, it's so awesome. Here's Paul all by himself standing before Felix, and he says to this man who has all this human power over him, hey, judge, you're going to be judged. You can't do anything to me, Felix, because I've already been judged at the cross of Jesus. Jesus has already borne my punishment, and the worst thing you can do to me is to kill me, and that would actually be the very best thing that could ever happen to me. See, the question, judge, is what will you do? How will you answer to the king? See, Paul is just talking to Felix about him being in the hands of a holy God. And he is just telling Felix, you can be saved from the judgment by turning to Jesus. He's telling him, Felix, it is judgment or Jesus. Take your pick. And Paul is so courageous and calm. He doesn't bend in public. He doesn't bend in private. There was a a famous pastor in the 1800s in America named Thomas Cartwright. And one time he preached, and before he got up to preach, he was told that President Andrew Jackson was going to be in the audience, and he was told, you really should go easy today. But uh, Thomas Cartwright got up in the pulpit, and he said, I have heard Andrew Jackson is in the audience. I want to tell Andrew Jackson that if he hasn't repented and believed in Jesus, then he is going to split hell wide open. After the service, Andrew Jackson came up and said to him, if I had soldiers as brave as you, I could take over the world. And that is Paul's spirit, unbendable, doesn't care who's in the audience. He knows that before God, all of us, we are laid naked and bare before his holiness. God shows no partiality. God's judgment is always just and pure and holy. There's only one hope, and that hope is Jesus, and you have to flee to Jesus for refuge. Now, I just want to say to us, because our culture, 21st century America, doesn't get this and doesn't like this, we need to be reminded as God's people that we don't love people if we don't tell them the truth. You can feel loving, and you can speak words that you think are kind, but if you leave out the bad news, then you're not loving people. We need to tell them the truth. Do it in a loving way. Do it in a respectful way, yes. But tell the truth because there is no good news apart from an understanding of the bad news. Luke writes, Felix was afraid and said that's enough for now. Isn't that fascinating? He hears Paul speaking and he, the ruler, becomes afraid. He tells Paul, you may leave. When I find it convenient, I will send for you. Now, we see more procrastination here, and there's a lot of people like Felix. I'll get around to it one day, someday. Verse 26 says, at the same time, he was hoping that Paul would offer him a bribe, so he sent for him frequently and talked with him. How many times did he send for him? We, we don't know. Paul just keeps coming. They keep talking. Paul just keeps preaching the gospel. And it turns out, what does Felix want? Well, he wants some money. He loves money more than Jesus. Felix thinks that he's in control of his time. Uh, Felix loves his career more than Jesus. That's actually what's behind the last verse, verse 27, where it says, when two years had passed, Felix was succeeded by Portius Festus because Felix wanted to grant a favor to the Jews. He left Paul in prison. So he's trying to preserve his career. 
And this is, friends, not how we accept the word. I want money. I want career. I'll do it in my own time. We should learn from Felix, and we should tremble. You know, if you were here this morning and you're not a follower of Christ, maybe you're checking things out, wondering about what we believe here, we want to say to you today, here is the good news. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. You will be saved from judgment. You can have everlasting joy. Everything has already been accomplished for you. Just look to Jesus and receive his gift of life, Jesus alone. And if you aren't a Christian, please do not think that time is on your side. You don't know. Felix could never say, I didn't hear the gospel because he heard it for two years, and yet we have no indication he ever believed. Now, this text that we've been looking at shows us first how to give the gospel, like Paul, how to talk to our friends and family, coworkers, neighbors, calmly, courageously, respectfully, but truthfully. But it also shows us how not to receive the word, uh, how not to delay and not to push away like Felix did. And, and again, I want to point out to us how unpopular what I've been telling you is. Do you understand in a culture that thinks the supreme virtue in life is tolerance and never telling anyone else that they might be wrong? A culture doesn't like this kind of thing. Our culture doesn't even like the word preaching. You know if somebody says, don't preach to me, they're not saying something nice to you. I mean, how would you like to have that as your career? You know, Madonna used to sing, Papa, don't preach, but our culture says, Pastor, don't preach. That's how it is today. And then you think about the thought about talking about something like self-control in our sexual revolution culture. That's crazy to talk about righteousness or coming judgment. But here's the thing. We must preach the truth, and the truth is the gospel, because if we don't tell the truth, we will give up the gospel. And if we give up the gospel, we're not loving people. Only churches that continue to love people and continue to speak the truth of the gospel have anything to offer this world. So let's be faithful. One day we're going to see the king. Today, even when we don't see him, even when we don't know what he's doing, we can know that he is at work and we can trust him and we can keep calm. I mean, Paul was going through this trial. He's in prison for two years. What was God up to? Well, we certainly don't know everything, but you know, one of the interesting things, scholars believe there's some indications of this in a few places uh, subtly in the New Testament. Um, scholars believe that during these two years in prison, in their proximity uh, to Jer Jerusalem, that he and Luke, Paul and Luke, were using this time to research and to write the very book of Acts that we've been studying. You see, God's always at work always accomplishing his purposes. We can trust him. We can, we can do that even when it feels like we're in some kind of a prison season of our work. We can be encouraged. So never mistake the lack of the spectacular or the dramatic for the inactivity of God. God's always at work. Small things, big things, and you can trust him in your life. And you can thank him in your life. So let's do that today. This is the word of the Lord for us, his people. Would you bow your heads?